Well, I'm not prone to read poetry, but I have found one poem to be both piercing and unforgettable. Published in 1893, G.K. Chesterton called this poem, quote, the most magnificent poem ever written in English. To which J.R.R. Tolkien responded by saying Chesterton was not giving the poem the credit it deserves. Oscar Wilde commented, why can't I write poetry like that? That kind of writing is what I've wanted to do all my life. The poem I'm referring to was penned by a man who was deeply troubled. He struggled through depression, poor health, poverty, and an addiction to opioids. On top of that, he tried to take his life through suicide. In his poem, he described how he fled from God and hid from him while searching for satisfaction in activities and experiences, which ultimately left him totally unsatisfied. Here's how it begins. The Old English makes it both majestic and a bit muddled to our ears. I fled him. Down the nights and down the days, I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind in the midst of tears I hid from him. There's a repeating refrain that captures the loving and seeking heart of God who chases down a sinner who's trying to flee from him. Listen to these words, I sped from those strong feet that followed after me, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat. More instant than the feet, all things betray thee who betrayest me. So this poem captures two truths. Truth number one, when we sin, we try to run and hide from God. Truth number two, when we sin, God seeks us and chases us down. Does anyone know the name of the poem? All right, we got one. Grayson knew it, the hound of heaven. We've only had one person in each service know that. Listen, I had to look it up too. So (laughs) it's written by Francis Thompson. But if that triggered something within you, I did find a contemporary adaptation of that. It's an excellent short video. It's posted on the Sermon Extras tab on our website and mobile app. Aren't you glad there is no night? dark enough to hide us? Aren't you glad that there is no flight swift enough to carry us away from the pursuing love of God? Corey Ten Boom, survivor of the Holocaust, wrote these words, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Now, the Puritans were fond of referring to God as the hound of heaven, 
And that comes from this poem. But actually, Adam and Eve were the very first humans who heard the hound, the holy hound of heaven, pursuing them. After being tempted by the serpent, that was our topic two weeks ago when we walked through the steps the serpent used to tempt Eve. Last week, we saw the slippery slope of sin. Well, today, we're going to see how this first couple experienced so much shame. They were just loaded with guilt that they tried to hide from the one who alone is holy, holy, holy. In order to honor God in his word, I'm going to invite you to stand and let's read together three verses from Genesis 3. We've been walking through these opening chapters verse by verse. We've slowed the pace down so that we can dive into the depths of these words that tell us more about who God is more about our condition, and more about what he's done to chase after us. Let's read now, beginning in verse 8, being reminded that this is God's inspired and inerrant and authoritative word. Let's read together. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. You can be seated. Here's our main idea. God loves to seek sinners, and he longs to save them. The first point is this, God comes to us relationally when we try to hide from him. And so after Adam and Eve sinned, would you note, they heard, I'm in verse 8, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. This is the first theophany in the Bible. A theophany is defined as a visible manifestation of God that is tangible to the human senses. Actually, I wonder if this was a Christophany, where we see the pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, once again, we see how God is referred to as Lord God. That's Yahweh Elohim. That emphasizes both his power and how personal he is, his personal presence. You'll observe three times in these verses, he's called the creator and the covenant keeper. And the Hebrews suggest this was a normal and regular practice for God to be walking among his creation, to be present with them in this natural and intimate way. This is further evidence that the garden was actually like a temple and Adam served as a priest and Adam and Eve enjoyed God's presence in this sacred sanctuary. The idea behind walking implies movement. It literally means to walk back and forth. Oh, this picture is so beautiful. God came walking. He came walking, not running and chasing after and ready to clobber. He came walking. 
You see, God is not distant from his creation. He walks among us. But we see this in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12. And I, this is so tender, I will walk among you. I'll be your God and you shall be my people. Do you know one of the greatest compliments you could pay to somebody is if you were to say these words, he walks with God or she walks with God. Wouldn't it be great when someone says your name that that's what they would say next? They walk with God. I'm reminded, Genesis chapter 5, verse 22, Enoch walked with God. Next chapter, Genesis 6, verse 9, Noah also walked with God. The cool of the day refers to late afternoon or early evening. The Hebrew speaks of of the spirit or breath. It literally reads, in the breeze of the day, when the evening winds would blow gently through the garden. In that culture, it was common for people to take walks late in the afternoon, early evening, because it wasn't as hot. It was cool. And during this time of the day, we even tend to become quite reflective. The day is almost over. We think back on our day. We look ahead to the next day. I know that's the hardest time of the day for my dad. See, my mom died a little over a year ago, and Boy, that time, late afternoon, until my dad goes to bed. He's he's alone, he's thinking, he's remembering times with his wife. He mourns as memories flood his mind. And so as the breeze blows and the night begins to fall, I wonder if Adam and Eve are mourning the loss of the companionship they had with God before they sinned, and they had this comfort with God before they try to cover up and try to conceal themselves. It makes me think of the words to the song, In the Garden. Now, that song was actually written with John chapter 20 in mind when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is having a conversation with Mary in the garden. But I think it applies to this garden as well. He walks with me. And talks with me. And he tells me I am his own. God wanted to walk and talk with Adam and Eve. But instead they balked. They bailed. And in the place of being free. All they wanted to do was flee. And hide behind a tree. Now many people read the story of Genesis like this. Adam and Eve sinned, God came looking for them, he chewed them out, cursed everything in sight, kicked them out of the garden, locked the door behind them, or something like that. But even though rebellion had ruptured their relationship with God, don't miss how the Almighty took the initiative and he searched for them while they were in hiding. Aren't you glad God graciously seeks guilty sinners? However, instead of heading towards God, Adam and Eve hid themselves. That is the idea of concealing themselves. They're so filled with guilt and shame that they try to get as far away from God as possible. That phrase, presence of the Lord, God speaks of the wrath of judgment. 
We see that phrase in Genesis 4, verse 16, when Cain tries to run away from God's presence. We also see that in the opening chapter of Jonah, when the reluctant prophet doesn't want to accept his assignment and go and speak to his enemies. He heads off in the other direction, where we read in Jonah 1.3 that he tries to flee from the presence of God. Adam and Eve hid among the very trees God had created somehow thinking he couldn't see them. One commentator offers this insight. To hide among the trees of the garden is a picture of the deepest density and darkness of the garden, which now becomes an emblem of the world and of that worldly enjoyment in which the sinner tries to hide himself. One pastor points out that Adam and Eve hid before God spoke to them. See, the presence of the Lord was enough to make them panic when they heard him calling, speaking. They were petrified. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to hide from God? If so, how did that work out for you? God knows where we are, and yet we... Oftentimes, we want to run and think we can hide. No matter what we do or how far away we try to flee, God takes the initiative to restore relationship with them. This is beautifully stated in Psalm 139, verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? You're everywhere. If I make my bed here, if I go where the sun comes up, where it goes down, God, you're there. God loves to seek sinners, and he longs to save them. When we sin, we try to run and hide. When we sin, God seeks us and chases after us. Secondly, God calls us personally when we're afraid of him. I love how God's first words to the first couple after they sinned were words of grace. (laughs) The powerful and personal God called out to Adam, which means to summon, to invite. Notice again how God holds Adam responsible, even though it was Eve who was the first to sin. I wonder if this also indicates it was Adam's idea to go into hiding. Well, then he asked Adam a question, not because God didn't know the answer, but because he wanted Adam, he wanted Adam to think about where disobedience had brought him. This personal question he asked Adam is the same personal question God asked me and he asked you. Adam, where are you? Where are you? I like the King James here, where art thou? Some of us read this question with a certain tone. Where are you guys? You two really messed out. Come out here now. (laughs) Don't miss this. The first thing God does when he approaches sinful humans is to draw them out of hiding. Derek Kidner is spot on when he writes, God's first word to fallen man has all the marks of grace. God's question invited confession because God wanted to reconcile, not retaliate. The great message of the Bible is that God searches for and still speaks to his fallen creatures through his word. God asks personal questions to get us to consider the state of our heart. 
He asks questions to get us to think about things we normally don't think about. There are some 200 questions in the Bible. Jesus asked a lot of questions, very effective in his teaching style. But there are some questions in the early chapters of Genesis. Well, I put together just five of the many questions, but Genesis 4, verse 9, question to Cain. Hey, Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Or Genesis 18, 9, speaking to Sarah, where, Abraham, is Sarah, your wife? Or when Elijah is spinning out and living with no margin, he's in a bad spot, he thinks he's the only one left, God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Matthew 16, 15, but who do you say that I am, Jesus asked, and Peter nailed the answer. This one's worth pondering from Jesus. Nevertheless, Luke 18, 8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find faith in me? Will he find faith here at Edgewood? Will he find faith on the earth? Or will we have all scattered and folded and, and gone our own ways? Now, God obviously knew where they were hiding and that he would have to take the initiative to restore the relationship. His question is meant to stir Adam to a sense of being lost so that he would confess his sin. E.J. Young expressed it this way, God's intention was not to harm them, but to help them. Well, instead of answering where he was hiding, Adam answered with why. God was trying to get Adam to admit his sin. Instead, he focused on the consequence of his sin. Join me in verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam doesn't answer the question. Adam felt exposed in the presence of holiness, so he tries to deflect the question and hide himself. Their attempt at using fig leaves to cover up had failed, and so did their plan to conceal themselves. Also observe that God's presence was no longer a comfort and a joy to Adam and Eve after they sinned. One commentator said, now God's presence was a terror to them, and they had become a terror to themselves. Sin made Adam afraid of God's presence and fearful of God's power. As sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, fear causes us to flee from God as well. We see this in how the people responded after they're given the Ten Commandments. Check out what comes right after that. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. By God's grace, he's allowed me to be a minister of the gospel for over 30 years, and I've learned so many things. I just jotted down two things. Number one, sometimes people avoid attending church or avoid being around other Christians because they don't want to face their sin. You see, like Adam and Eve, it's easier to hide and conceal your sins than it is to respond to God's holiness and confess them. Remember when Isaiah encountered the holiness of God, his initial reaction was to push back. He said, woe, woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips. 
Fear of exposure can cause people to unplug, and when they unplug, it's very likely they'll end up unraveling. And sometimes people skip church because they know, well, frankly, they know they're sinning, and they don't want to change. D.L. Moody's insight is spot on in this regard. D.L. Moody said, the Bible will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from the Bible. You've probably all been there, right? If you're in a bad spot, you're just living for yourself, you're probably not drawn to the Bible at that point because you want to just kind of do the stuff you want to do But actually, that's where we need to go, right? For freedom and forgiveness. Second thing I wrote down is God is the true seeker of lost souls. It's been common in the church world to refer to people who don't know Jesus as seekers. Now, I get that. I understand it. But Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I know in my own life, if it weren't for God knocking out some props in my life, if it weren't for God drawing me to himself, I would never have come because I was born running away and hiding from him. Incidentally, I wonder if Adam was expecting God's promise of death. Look at Genesis 2.17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. As the sun set, Adam heard God's voice. Uh, Perhaps he thought the Almighty was going to enforce his righteous justice. Don't miss how God's mercy did not vaporize them immediately. He came toward them like a tender shepherd calling out for his lost sheep. This makes me think of what Jesus said in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. I enjoy playing hide-and-seek with our grandchildren. We have two grandchildren in the area, and so on Friday afternoon, Uh, we were playing hide-and-seek. My favorite thing is when a grandchild covers their eyes and they think that since they can't see, we can't see them. I wonder if Adam's kind of like that. God sees exactly. As Adam and Eve cover their bodies and conceal themselves in the trees, they foolishly think that God can't see them. When I was growing up, we played a mean game of hide-and-seek. We liked playing it outside, where it was much easier to hide behind trees or even up in a tree. I can remember if I was the one seeking, I'd count really fast, right? You skip a bunch of numbers, and then say, ready or not, here I come. And once I started looking and seeking, I'd say something like, come out, come out, wherever you are, (laughs) When someone would locate an especially good spot, nobody could find them. They were like gone for a long time. We'd then eventually yell out this phrase, Ali, Ali, oxen free. <laughs> I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> and either do you, if you've used it. All we knew was it had something to do with the game being over and the last one being found was declared the winner. 
Well, I like to dive in and study things, so I went to a very trusted source this week, Wikipedia. (laughs) And here's what I found out. The exact origin of this phrase is uncertain. Nobody really knows. But it could be derived from, quote, all ye, all ye outs in free. In other words, all who are out may come in without penalty. Others speculate it may be a corruption of an ungrammatical German phrase, meaning all, all are now also free. Another simpler version was used as a call in the streets of London when kids would play hide-and-seek. All ye, all ye urchins free. Hey, fellow urchins, the game is over. It's time to come out of hiding. It's time to be found by the one who's been seeking you for years. As one pastor put it, come out from behind the trees and move toward him and taste the sweetness of his mercy. Like you, I've observed and celebrated what has been happening at Asbury University and other college campuses. This week, I was challenged by a post written by a guy named Trevin Wax, Here's the title, The Burning Question from Asbury Isn't About Asbury. I want to share a few helpful excerpts, and as I read, my guess is you go, I'm going to get a hold of that entire article. You can get it on our Sermon Extras tab on the website or app. You've heard the news of spiritual awakening at Asbury. An ordinary chapel turned into an ongoing service of praise and worship, confession of sin, celebration of salvation, and has now garnered attention from all over the country and sparked similar stirrings of spiritual intensity in other colleges and universities. The burning question from Asbury isn't about Asbury. It's about you. It's about your heart. It's about your longing. It's possible to say you want revival, but deep down, to not want the discomfort God's presence might bring. It's possible to sing songs every Sunday asking for renewal while nursing grudges and bitterness that you don't want to be delivered from. It's possible to enjoy the division in the church, your theological tribalism, or the secret sins you harbor, or to take twisted comfort in your complacency. I do not understand Christian people who are not thrilled by the whole idea of revival, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, to which Trevin adds, I don't either. Whatever happens or doesn't happen at the Asbury Awakening and beyond, may we be marked by a living thirst for a knowledge of the living God and an irrepressible desire to see him at work in power, doing whatever he and alone can do in us and through us. The thrill of orthodoxy results not in arms crossed, but in arms uplifted. Here's how he ends. And so we sing with Fanny Crosby, the little old blind woman, whose song still resounds, Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry. 
while on others thou art calling. Do not pass me by. This past Tuesday, the staff and deacons spent time praying for God to awaken us individually and Edgewood to revive us. We're keeping Psalm 85, verse 6 in front of us. Will you not revive us again, Lord, that we may rejoice in you? We know revival must begin with each one of us personally and individually. I was deeply moved last Saturday night to see one of our young adults sitting in the very back there. She had her Bible open. She arrived about 4.30. I greeted her. She came to pray for the entire Saturday night service. And while I was preaching, I could see her in the back with her head bowed, her hands like this. I almost started weeping while I was preaching. There's a group of young adults here who arrive before mainspring begins in order to pray for revival. So let me ask you a question. It's personal. You don't have to answer for me. But you do need to answer it. Where art thou? Is there a sin you're holding on to? Is there an activity you're hiding behind? I mean, it could be ambition, or it could be something like bitterness, hatred, a lack of forgiveness, immorality, fantasies, gaming, shopping, your phone, alcohol, drugs, hobbies, possessions, legalism. Many years ago, I heard a pastor say something, and I don't have this downward perfect, but I, I have the essence of what he said, and it was startling to me. It goes something like this. What percent would you say you're surrendered to Christ? So ponder that. What percent would you say you're surrendered? 50%? 75%? Well, 75% is better than being 50%. 85%? That's pretty good. 95%? That's even better. Or maybe you'd say, I'm 99% surrendered. That sounds really good, right? And then I heard the pastor say these words. I've never forgotten them. If you're 99% surrendered, you're still 1% short. Larry, you reminded us of that. To follow Christ is to die to self and follow him, to be 100% committed. To help with that, I commend a very dangerous prayer to pray. It's right from Scripture. Here it is, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. 
Man, if you pray this and you mean it, some things are going to go on in your own heart. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. And then lead me, Lord, in the way everlasting. It's a great prayer to pray. If you don't know Christ yet, let me just level with you. You won't be able to hide from him when he returns. Revelation 6.16 says those who aren't saved would rather have rocks fall on them and be buried alive than face the righteous fury of his wrath. Check out these words, fall on us, they cry, and hide us from the face. There's the word hide from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. It's unsettling to know that nothing is hidden from God, isn't it? Let me reframe it. It's actually very comforting to know nothing is hidden from God. Because he knows everything about you. And he still loves you. There are no secrets. And so why do we hide? Why do we cover up? Why do we conceal? Why do we try to run away? Jeremiah 23, 24. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? The answer is no, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? The answer is yes, declares the Lord. So instead of running and hiding... Are you ready to see God's pursuit of you as loving and gracious? There's a picture book for children called The Runaway Bunny. This is written by the same author who wrote Goodnight Moon. I have no idea what that book's about. I've read it a lot. I'm still not sure. But in The Runaway Bunny, a small rabbit engages in this imaginary game of hide-and-seek, and he tells his mother he's going to run far away. His mother gives him this assurance, quote, If you run away, I will run after you. Friends, when we try to evade and flee from God's love, we can hear his feet pounding behind us until we're driven to our knees in joyful surrender by the emptiness and futility of our earthly pursuits. One reviewer of the poem Hound of Heaven says this, his endless flight ends when the poet finally comes to see that the darkness of deprivation, which all along he feared, was really but the shadow of the divine hand stretched over him in love. Mm. You are loved, friend. Some of you think, no way. If you knew what I've done, if you knew what I'm doing right now, you are loved. 
So here's the question. Are you ready to stop running and stop hiding? Because God loves to seek sinners and he longs to save them. My pastor friend, Ben Lovelady, man, I quote from him all the time, but I, I, I do not see any better writing on Genesis than Ben, and he pastors over in Silvis. He writes these words, Was Adam created to be hidden? Could it be that even in his boldness, there was an element where God created Adam to be enveloped by something greater? Yet when Adam sinned, like a hermit crab that has lost its shell, he lost his strength and security and was now running scared, looking for alternate cover other than God. And worse, he runs for cover apart from God's glory. Among the very trees he was commissioned to protect. Enter Christ. He is our hiding place. Effectively, he whispers to Adam, directing him to the proper tree behind which to hide. Jesus hides us in himself before the Father, and we are safe. He has absorbed our disqualifying sin, being distanced from the Father himself, so we might come close from hiding to hidden. Well, I was pondering those words, and I wrote this down. The holy hound of heaven persistently pursues us, causing us to remember that his kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. That's Romans 2, verse 4. God's grace will absorb our guilt when we turn to him alone. One of the lines from the hound of heaven refers to Jesus as Cypress, that's the name of a tree, Cypress crowned. Our Savior searches us and knows us. He climbs the cross for us to hide us behind his tree that makes us free. The tremendous theologian John Stott described his conversion this way, quote, my faith is due to Jesus Christ himself who pursued me relentlessly even when I was running away from him in order to go my own way. And if it were not for the gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven, I would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. Let me circle back around. Are you tired of hiding? Do you want to stop trying to cover up your sins? That's a lot of work to try to manage your sins and manage your image and try to fool everybody and act like you're fooling yourself. That takes a lot of work. Your only hope is to run to God, not away from him. The very God who you have rebelled and rebelled against and resisted is the only one who is ready to forgive and restore you. It's time to come out of your hiding place. Do you feel guilty about your sins? If so, that's a good thing. (laughs) See, our culture doesn't like guilt. We try to do whatever we can. Oh, you shouldn't feel guilty. Listen, If you feel guilty about your sins, that's a good thing. Here's why. You'll never know you need God's grace until you first admit you are guilty. You'll never understand God's love until you first admit how lost you are. Before you can embrace the good news of the gospel, you must first admit the bad news of your guilt before a holy God. 
So if God asked you this question, where are you, how would you answer? Where exactly are you? And what are you doing there? The hound of heaven ends with the wandering soul's final surrender to God's love. Rise, clasp my hand, God says, and come. Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am whom thou seekest. Do you hear the footsteps of the holy hound? Stop running, stop hiding, allow yourself to be found by him. Turn and welcome him. Surrender to him. Come out, come out. Wherever you are, the game is over. You know, Jesus only asks us to give up one thing to follow him. And that one thing is everything. He asks us to give up everything to follow. And if you're not yet saved, today's the day for you to be saved. If you are saved and you've been living for yourself, you know you're not 100% surrendered, this is the time to fully surrender in an act of rededication. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. So here's the good news of the gospel for guilty sinners. God sent his son Jesus to live and then to die in our place as our substitute. When his blood was shed, his blood paid the price for all of our rebellion, all of our sin. And God the Father accepted that as full and final payment. And that sacrifice fully satisfied his righteous and holy wrath. And once you trust his death and his resurrection, your sins will be forgiven and you will be declared righteous. Would you repent right now in complete surrender? And cry out to him and ask him to save you from your sins. Ask him to come into your life, to take your life. And ask him to give you what you need to follow him faithfully and fully for the rest of your life. And if you're a believer, maybe today you've been shaken, maybe you haven't really been saved yet. Well, take care of that if that's the case. Or maybe you know you are, but you know you are not living like you should. Would you confess that ugly sin right now? Just own it before him. Repent of it. If you know you're divided in your heart, own it, confess it. As God brings back specific sins, confess those to him. But ultimately, pray and say something like, God, I surrender fully to you. I want to be 100% committed to you. Use me. 
for your honor, for your glory, for the fame of your glorious name in this dark world where people are searching and looking for meaning and purpose apart from you. Lord, you've assembled us here in this room for your purposes. Lord, we pray that we have worshipped you in spirit and in truth, but you've also brought us together here and those engaging online or those listening later on radio so that we could offer ourselves in full to you. Use us now for your glory and your honor, we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.